Amen. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? Doing good. Glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Alan. If this is your first time at Grace Hill, just want to welcome you. I'm one of the pastors here and would love to be able to meet you uh, after the service. Just a, a, something really simple about our church is we love God's word. Uh, we believe God's word as found in the Bible is where we find life and everything we need to know about who we are and who God is and uh, what Monty, uh, whom I call dad, uh, what he just uh, did for us is he just prayed God's word over us. I don't know if you noticed that, so thank you. And what we're gonna do now is we're gonna open up God's word and, and read from it and uh, see what God has to say to us through it. So if you have a Bible, you can open that to Genesis chapter four. So first book of the Bible, four chapters in, all right? You got a few minutes to find it, but uh, Genesis chapter four is where we're gonna be. And if you'd like to use your phone app, that's fine. The verses will obviously be uh, on the screen um, behind me as well. And so Genesis chapter four, we'll read that in just a, a few minutes. Um, but every single human being uh, is in need of the same thing. And every single human being spends their life seeking out this thing. All right, and what I'm referring to is salvation. Now, salvation is a religious term. We typically think of that in a, in a religious setting. So let me, let me put a definition on that or let me explain that in such a way that I think everyone could identify with whether you believe in God or not. So, so here's what I mean by the term salvation in the simplest possible terms. When I get blank, everything will be good. Once blank happens in my life, then everything will be easier, everything will be better in my life. So, so whatever you use to fill in the blank, that's what you are looking to for salvation. That will be the thing that will save you from this current life of frustration and transport you to what you think will be the good life, that, that greener grass where everything will be better. All right, so when I get out of debt, I finally will be able to do the things that I wanna do. Uh, once I find a spouse, then I won't be lonely anymore. Uh, once my spouse changes, uh, then things will get better. Or once uh, I graduate with my degree, once I retire, once my business starts to get traction and take off, once my kids get a bit older, a little bit more independent, and they don't need as much supervision, that's when things are going to start to get better for me. Salvation. Um, and I think that for many of us, if not all of us, the thing that we actually look to, to, to fill in the blank, to transport us to the good life, is our work, our vocation. Now, we might not like that we need to look to our work to be the thing that's going to transport us to the good life, but our work is our source of income. Our work is how we provide for, care for our family. It is, for many of us, our place of influence. Our work is how we get to retirement, right? It's very common for people to say in our culture that their desire in life, their goal in life is to get to a place where they no longer have to work, almost as if work 
is this necessary evil that we must spend our days doing and life is going to get good as soon as we've worked enough and we don't need to work anymore. So whether you're a career professional, a a freelancer, a a wage worker, a a full-time stay-at-home parent, we all have work to do. It's a huge amount of our time is work, is devoted to work, and we expect work to advance our lives to where we think the good life is. And this morning, I wanna ask this question. What does it look like to let Jesus be king of my work? How does Jesus want my faith and my work to to intersect with one another? As you know, we're in a sermon series right now called King Jesus. We've been in this series for a better part of this year. And we're in this six-week stretch of the series where what we're doing is addressing very specific topics in our life and seeking to ask, what does it look like to let Jesus be king and Lord over this particular topic? So last week, we talked about our time. And and this morning, we're going to talk about our work. Now, I said last week, and I want to keep saying it so it just gets kind of drilled into us. There are two sermons out of this King Jesus series that act as a really critical preface to this morning's sermon and all six of these topics that we're going to address. One of these sermons explains why we should submit our entire lives to Jesus as our Lord, and the other one explains how we should do that. So the sermon that explains why we should do that was two weeks ago. It was, called, it was part 14 called Joy a Hundredfold. And what we talked about in that sermon is how God created us as image bearers of God. So our goal, our purpose in life is to image God, to live for him, represent him, every part of our life for his glory. That's where our joy is found because that's how God designed us. He's our creator And that's how he created us. And so the essence of sin is this rejection of that purpose. God, I don't want to live my life imaging you. I want to live my life imaging myself. I want to live for myself. And the irony that we find in life is that when we live for Christ, that's where joy is found. And when we live for ourselves, the Bible actually tells us that's where restlessness is found. And so we submit our lives to Jesus because he's our king. He deserves all honor and glory and praise. And he is where our joy is found. So if you missed part 14, go listen to that. The, the other sermon that explains how we do this was part 10 of the series called The Way of the Kingdom. And in this sermon, we studied what Jesus taught us about the way of God's kingdom, how we live our lives in this way, and we learned in that sermon that in God's kingdom, we follow Jesus. We live for him by laying down our lives as Jesus laid down his life. So here's where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about when it comes to our work, when it comes to our vocation, how do we lay down our rights and our desires as Jesus did for God and others? Because we know that in living in that way is where our true joy is found. That's where we're going. 
Now, I'm sure that all of us have experienced all different kinds of emotions when it comes to our work. I'm sure many of us have had moments in our work where we were proud of, of what we've done and it's been a life-giving thing to us. And I'm sure many of us have had moments in our work where we are frustrated or bitter or it was really hard for us. Uh, some of us wish we could just right now, when it comes to our work, just kind of walk straight out the door and just be done with it. You know, sometimes we might feel like Steve Slater. You heard of this guy? Former flight attendant for JetBlue. In 2010, have you heard about this? In 2010, he was working a flight from Pittsburgh to JFK. The flight landed. He was unhappy with his job. So what he decided to do is that he was done. And so what he was gonna do is he got on the PA of the uh, aircraft in front of everybody. He expressed his displeasure with his job, grabbed a couple of beers from the flight cart, pulled the emergency evacuation slide and slid right off the plane. Did y'all see this? Go Google this, it's true. He got famous, he was like on all the late night shows for that. But we all experience different kinds of emotions. We wish we could do that. If you're a stay at home parent, I guarantee you, if there was an emergency evacuation slide there, you would have taken it several times. But this morning, I want us to see what the Bible has to say about our work. And here's the deal. On first glance, this might be discouraging to you. But hang with me, because the, the Bible is going to do is it's gonna help us reorient how we approach work. But here's what you might find discouraging. When we open the Bible and we look at what does God say about work, what we find is that we will always work. Even in eternity, in God's kingdom, in heaven, when new heavens and new earth, when Jesus is king and everything has been made new, we will work. God designed us to work. Uh, in fact, in the garden, but before the world fell into sin, when we had a perfect relationship with God, I mean, this was par paradise. God provided for every one of our needs in this place, and there was still work. Uh, look at this, uh, Genesis chapter one, verse 28. I'll just have this on the screen for you. Uh, talking about the creation. Again, no sin in the world yet. It says, God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And, and we studied this word subdue uh, several months ago, but this is God's call on humanity to work, create, advance, study the creation, build technology, discover things, do science. Right? That's what that word means. And so this is a call upon creation by God to work. Uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 15, still in the garden, no sin, the Lord God took the man, placed him in the garden of Eden, look at this, to work it and watch over it. And so yes, God was gonna provide for every one of our needs in the garden, but the way that he did that was through our work. It wasn't like God was serving them beautiful meals on a silver platter in the garden. No, man worked. They cultivated the garden. There was still work to be done and mankind joyfully worked so that God's creation would flourish. And there will be work for all of eternity after this life. You will have a job in the new heavens and new earth. And you're like, wait, what? You're not gonna be floating in a cloud. You have a job, you have a body. 
right? Mankind will still have the mandate to subdue, cultivate, create, advance. We still will work to provide for the good of all creation alongside God. And so if your goal is to never work again in the day of your life, well, then eternity might be a surprise for you. But what we learn in Genesis chapter three and Genesis chapter four is that when the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, it had a profound impact on our work because God cursed our work. Look at this, Genesis chapter three, just a couple of verses for you, it'll be on the screen. Genesis chapter three, verses 17 and 19. This is God pronouncing a curse upon our work in response to the fall and mankind sinning against God. Remember what we said sin was. God, I don't want my purpose to be you. I want my purpose to be me. It says, so the ground is, God is saying this. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. Right, so, so here's the curse upon our work. We will still work in order to provide for ourselves. We will have to do that, but it's going to be hard. And it's going to be frustrating and it's gonna be exhausting. And our work will not save us. We were made of dust and we will return to dust. See, in the garden before the fall, in God's kingdom after Jesus returns, after sin's been conquered in both of those places, work is not this necessary evil so that we may live. Work is this joyful participation in creation for the good of everybody. But under the curse, our work is not a joyful participation in the good life. It's our very reminder that we are nowhere near the good life. And as hard as we will work, we'll return to the dust. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes was lamenting this reality. Look at this in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses 22 to 23. The writer says, for what does a person get with all of his work and all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful, even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. See, there's a, there's a profound difference between work in God's kingdom and work in this fallen world. In God's kingdom, our work is not about a better future, it's simply participation in God's creation. In this fallen world, our work is about trying to get ourselves a, a better future, salvation, trying to find the good life. And this morning, we need to understand the difference between these two because it's going to transform how we view our work today. And so we see the implications of these two different views of work in Genesis chapter four. Uh, where we read the story of Cain and Abel. So this is our main text this morning that I want us to study together in Genesis chapter four. So let me read uh, verses one to 12 for us, and then we'll study them together. Genesis four, verses one to 12. 
says the man, this is Adam, was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be restless wanderer on the earth. So we have the two children of Adam and Eve, children for right now, Cain and Abel. Notice how they're all identified in the text by their occupation, their work. Uh, Abel was a shepherd, Cain was a farmer, and both Cain and Abel bring to God an offering, uh, some of the fruits of their labor. And what we see in our passage is that in the type of offering that each brought to God, we see their view of work and their implications of that view. So let me show you this, all right? Let's, let's first look at Cain. Cain brings to God some of the crops, of his crops as his offering. And the Lord does not accept his offering. And, and you might look at that at first and go, man, that's, that's kind of ungracious of God. Like, what's going on here? But, but we have to understand, in Cain's response to God's rejection of his offering, we see Cain's motivation for bringing that offering to God in the first place. Because the text says that Cain was furious. He was furious that God rejected it. And he was furious because he worked hard for that crop. And in his mind, that work should have purchased him something. That work deserved its proper wage. Within him, he was seeking God's blessing. That work was what Cain was looking to for his salvation, you could say, to be the thing that was going to transport him from this fallen life to the good life, maybe a blessed life by God, and God refused it. See, this is a cursed view of work. I have to work for a better future. It's a means to an end. And when that work does not deliver to me the good life that I think it should, it's infuriating. It's frustrating. And if you think about it, we so easily take the same view as Cain when it comes to our religious work. Uh, we can fall into thinking that, man, all my good works and the way that I've lived my life and you know, all my time in the Bible and serving in the church, that should, 
that should earn me some favor from God. Like, of course, I know that we're not saved by works. I know we're only saved by Jesus, but shouldn't all of these works that I do, shouldn't it at least make God more attentive to my prayers? Shouldn't it at least make God want to bless me more? Shouldn't it at least mean an easier life for me? My religious work ought to do something for me, right? It ought to transport me to a better life. And when it doesn't, it, it creates frustration with God. Like, God, do you, do you see? And this is what God warns Cain of in verse seven. He says, in that frustration that you feel, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it is ready to pounce on you. What did I say was the essence of sin, right? God, I don't want my life to be about you. I want my life to be about me. I have put in the work. Now you are obligated to give me what I've earned. A cursed view of work is a self centered view of work. This work is meant to bring me something, salvation, life. And when it doesn't deliver, we get frustrated or bitter, maybe jealous. You know, I work all day taking care of my kids and I feed them and I clean up after them and I wipe them and I dress them and I play with them and I come up with crafts for them and I snuggle them and all I get is whining in return. Look at those kids over there. They're like little angels. They never whine. Right? Sin, that's, that's sin crouching at your door. Bitterness and jealousy crouching at your door. But why did that guy get the promotion? I am far more qualified. I could much better, I could run this company better than anybody else around here. You know, that board, they just, they're just a good old boys club and they just want nothing but yes men. And they know I'm not gonna provide that. Sin is crouching at your door there. I've been working multiple jobs for so long and I can barely afford my rent and any of my other bills. And it seems like everyone else around me has all of this money to do and buy whatever they want. If I see one more of my friends post an Instagram pic of their vacation, I'm gonna go crazy, right? Sin is crouching at your door. We look at work and we say, I expect my work to bring me the life that I deserve to have. And that frustration and that bitterness and that jealousy will, just like Cain, make us a restless wanderer in our careers or in our work. Never at peace, always frustrated with something. Let's take a look at Abel. Look at what it says in verse four. It says, and Abel also presented an offering some of the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. What's interesting here about Abel's offering uh, is that we get more information about it. Uh, it wasn't just any portion of his flock, but it says Abel offered the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. And so later scriptures help us to understand the significance of this because what Abel did here is he offered his first and God delights in that and Abel also offered the best of his flock, the best portions, the most valuable of the fruits of his labor. Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Honor the Lord with the first of your earnings. Well, even having access to the word of God is so early, Abel does this. 
He doesn't offer to God the fruits of his labor as some sort of barter for God's blessing. No, Abel offers his first and his best as an act of worship to God, expecting nothing in return. See, here's the difference between Cain and Abel. With Cain, his work was the means of his salvation. With Abel, salvation had nothing to do with his work. And his work had nothing to do with his salvation. When it came to his salvation, Abel sought that from God by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse four tells us this. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Here's why this is significant. When we look to our work to bring us salvation, We are looking to our work to deliver something to us that only God can provide. See, for Abel, his work had nothing to do with his salvation. He came to God by faith, right? When we try to get right with God by our work, like Cain did, we come to God under the presumption that I have something that I can offer you that's valuable enough to cancel out my sin. But the Bible says that's impossible. In fact, the Bible says that our best works are but filthy rags in comparison to the righteous works that God commands of us. So we can't approach God hoping that our work has the value to purchase favor from God like Cain thought he could do. We must approach God by faith, faith that God will graciously provide for us the righteousness that we need. And the only way that you and I can be right with God is through faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the savior that God has provided us to redeem us from our sins and restore relationship with God for all of eternity. And so for, for Abel, he had faith in God for his work, for his salvation, and he did not look to his work to provide him that salvation. And, and therefore, that's the difference that Cain enables a view of work. For Cain, look at this, he thought he could earn salvation through his work, and so he offered God his work out of love for himself. For Abel, his work had nothing to do with his salvation. He approached God with faith and then offered God his work out of love for God. Huge difference between the two. Whenever we look to our work to provide for us only what God can provide, we will only be left with frustration and toil and restless wandering like Cain was. But brothers and sisters, this does not have to be true of you. I want you to hear this this morning. No matter what circumstance you're in right now when it comes to your work, the answer to your frustration, to the exhaustion, to the jealousy, it's not a new job. It's not a different circumstance. It's not a new boss. It's not retirement. It's not a higher salary. It's not better behaved children. I think, I'm pretty sure about that one. See, here's the difference between a cursed view of work and a redeemed view of work. A cursed view of work says, I am not where I'm supposed to be. I need my work to transport me to the good life, right? A redeemed view of work says, in Christ, I have everything that my soul truly needs, and now I can work to love God and others. 
And so the answer to our restlessness and our toil is, is not a new situation. The answer is, is, is not looking to our work for something that only God can give us. That's the answer. So, so we need to lower our expectations of what our work will do for our souls, and we need higher expectations of the kind of joy and contentment that God can provide to our souls. Right, let, let me say that again. We need lower expectations of what our work will do for our souls and higher expectations of what God can do for our souls. Because when we receive from God what we expect our work to provide for us, two incredibly important things happen. All right, first, our souls are set free from the frustration and the bitterness and the jealousy that our work can so often produce in our hearts because we expect less from our work. And secondly, our work is set free to no longer be about ourselves, but to serve God and others. And here's, here's the hint, here's the, the key to it all, right, the secret. Jesus becomes king of our work at that moment, and when that happens, what our work begins to fall in line with God's will with our lives and we actually find fulfillment and joy in our work. And so this morning, I, I challenge you to ask yourself this question. What do I find frustrating about my work? And what does that tell me about what I expect my work to do for my soul? Let me give you that question again. What do I find frustrating about my work? And what does that tell me about what I expect my work to do for my soul? Because in the answer to that question, you will find the pathway to joy in your work. I'm gonna show you. Like if you're a, if you're a stay-at-home parent, all right, uh, that job is of the utmost importance. It's grueling. The hours are long. You basically have no days off. You have the strong desire to, to raise your kids, to live and to think and approach life in a, in a certain way, but there's tons of setbacks. And all your children are different and you think you've got it figured out and then you don't got it figured out. Sometimes you see glimpses of fruit and then sometimes you constantly feel like you're a failure and, and way over your head. Parenting, it's a long game job, not a, not a short game. And that reality can be frustrating because many times the behavior and development of our kids is, is what we look to for affirmation. Sometimes that's the only good job that we get. And that can be discouraging. It can cause jealousy of other parents. It can cause bitterness at the constancy of the job. But parents, like you are not abnormal. Children develop and grow different paces and in different ways. Your parenting highs and parenting lows do not influence how your Father in heaven loves you and approves of you in Christ. And you need that truth spoken to your heart every single day so that your soul can be set free from getting that affirmation from your work. And your parenting can then be set free to not be focused on you, but fully focused on your kids. And when we can get our expectations out of the way, that's when parenting becomes more joyful. Still hard, but more joyful. 
If you, if you have a job where people report to you, you're a manager or a boss of some sort, right? we can so easily get frustrated with the employees who report to us uh, when they don't do the job that they're expected to do or in the standards that we expect of them. And as managers, we need to evaluate if our frustration is with the work being done poorly or if it's because that work being done poorly reflects poorly upon us. As a leader in this world, it is tempting to see the people that we manage as pawns to be used in our own career advancement or to reach our own financial goals. In other words, it's easy to see those who report to us as a means of reaching our own goals, our salvation. And our souls need to be set free from expecting that from our work because then we'll just begin seeing our employees as obstacles or pawns and and not people. And our work needs to be set free from that purpose of just serving me so I can begin to use my leadership position to love and serve others. Because true Christ-like leadership, leadership in God's kingdom, is when a leader uses his position and power to advance and develop others. And when you begin to do that, I promise it's way more satisfying to your soul. Right, if you're bored at work or you don't enjoy your work or you feel inadequate with your work or you feel unappreciated at your work, right, those can be powerful, debilitating feelings. I've felt them before. But they also are feelings that are dominated by the expectation that my work exists to serve me and not my work exists to serve God and and others. And that can create a lot of frustration and bitterness inside of us. That can cause us to, to not give everything that we have to our work. Might cause us to avoid certain conversations that we need to have with people. It might cause us to not be motivated to ask other people for help so we can improve. It might cause us to not give our coworkers the benefit of the doubt. It might cause us to join in on the office gossip every single day. Your soul was not designed for your work to provide the information, affirmation that your soul needs. That can only come from your Father in heaven. Your soul needs to be free from that expectation and your work needs to be set free from that expectation so you can begin to take your gaze off yourself and begin working to the glory of God and as a servant to those in your workplace. And in that, your work becomes fulfilling. And so this morning, I... I could, I could preach for several more hours on this topic. There's so much that the Bible has to say about our work. But, but for now, I, I, want, I want to give all of us just a, a few moments to reflect on our work. Uh, we spend a good portion of our lives engaged in work, but let's ask the question. Let's, let's do this. What, what are my expectations of what my work will do for my soul? Where do I experience frustration and bitterness and jealousy at others in regards to my work? And based off of what we talked about today, what would it look like for Jesus to be king of my work? Starting tomorrow morning. And I think as we reflect on that, as we think through that, the answer to that question, it starts at this table that is before me, in front of you. Because this table, the communion table, represents the reality that Jesus has already completed all of the work that needs to be done for your soul to be forgiven, for your soul to be approved and affirmed, and for your soul to be secure 
that you have a place in God's kingdom for all of eternity, guaranteed the good life. This table represents the place where your soul can be set free to spend the rest of this life on this side of glory, working for the glory of God and the love of others. And that's where your soul will find peace in its work. Salvation, the good life, it's found nowhere except for what this table represents. At this table, we have bread and we have juice. At this table, we have bread and we break it. And what happens is we remember the fact that the body of Jesus was broken for us. Underneath the wrath of God as, as Jesus was taking on the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And then we take the juice and we drink it and we remember the shed blood of Jesus and how that has cleansed us from all of our sin and taken all of Jesus's righteousness and applied it to us so that we can stand before God fully approved, fully affirmed. See, the bread and the juice represent that the work is finished, that there's no more work to be done to please God on our behalf. And now we can spend the remainder of our lives working, living for his glory, not to barter with him, but just to worship him. And so if you're a follower of Christ this morning, I just invite you, take a few minutes in your chair and just reflect on this question. What do I expect of my work? And then I, I encourage you to come down to the table and be reminded of the work that Christ has already done on your behalf. To save you and to forgive you. And let that be an encouragement to your soul. Let me just say this too, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you still know what you believe about Jesus. What I wanna invite you to do is just pray and ask God, God, are these things true? Because this morning could be that time for you where you decide in your soul and in your heart, I'm done looking to the world and to my work and to other things for what my soul truly thirsts for. I'm now realizing my soul truly thirsts to be in relationship with God, and that's only through Jesus. And this morning, if you want to trust in Jesus for the first time, we would love to pray with you. We'd love to walk you through that and then maybe serve you your first bread and juice communion as you remember what Christ has done on the cross for you. And so if you wanna pray with someone during our worship at the end, you can come up and find me. We'll also have prayer ministers up front after the service as well who would love to pray with you. And so Grace Hill, let's just take a few moments. I'm gonna pray for us. When I'm done, take some time, just silent reflection. And then when you're ready, whenever you're ready, just come forward and you can take uh, some bread or a cracker and you can take some juice and take those uh, at your seat whenever uh, you feel led. Let me pray for us. God, under this curse that you placed upon work at the fall, um, in our sin, God, we have this view of work that's so ingrained into us that the only way that we can be made right with you, the only way that we can find our way to the good life, the only way to salvation is through working for it. And God, the, 
terrifying news is that there's no amount of work that we could do that would be enough to satisfy you and make us worthy of your glory and your holiness. But God, we praise you because in your grace and in your mercy, you sent your son Jesus to do the work on our behalf, to come and live a righteous life, to come and not be under the sentence of death, but to offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf so that he would take on your wrath and our punishment instead of us. And so that, Lord, we could get his righteousness so that when you look upon us, you see someone who is fully worthy, fully accepted, fully loved, And so God, I just pray that in this room, you would set us free from looking to anything in this world and especially our work to be the thing that's going to transport us to the good life. God, the good life is not retirement. It's not big bank accounts. It's not sitting on the beach. It's not a self-absorbed life. God, the good life is to be with you for all of eternity and in Christ, you have made that possible. So God, help us now, knowing what you have done in and through Christ to work to your glory and to work to love and serve the people around us. And so God, as we come forward to the table, we remember the cross. We praise you for the cross. We thank you for what you endured on our behalf on the cross. In Christ's name.